Hello, and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 203, The Old Man in the Sea. This week, we're going to turn the clock back a bit and take a look at one of Japan's most famous religious figures. His story starts in 774 in what was then known as Sanuki Province. Today, with its borders more or less unchanged, it's known as Kagawa Prefecture, the northeastern entry of the four provinces that give the island of Shikoku, or four provinces, its name. Japan in 774 was very much a country in transition. 130 years earlier, the nascent imperial government had embarked on the Taika reforms, a series of governmental programs designed to replace the old system of loose clan loyalties with a bureaucratic imperial government modeled on what was then East Asia's greatest superpower, Tang Dynasty China. After 130 years, that project was well on its way, but not yet complete. And a good thing for our young protagonist, too, he was a part of a prestigious local aristocratic family called the Saeki, who in turn were related to one of the most prestigious aristocratic clans in Japan, the Otomo. The fact that this young boy enjoyed the aristocratic connections he did meant that he was able to get an education, which in turn opened up some possibilities for him when he turned 15. And incidentally, I'm just going to start calling this young boy Kukai, though he is decades off from earning the name that would make him famous. Anyway, at 15, young Kukai was old enough and educated enough to make his way to Nara, which was, at least for six more years, the capital from which Japan's emperor theoretically ruled. I say theoretically because even by this early date, in practice the emperors did very little. We're still about 100 years off from the birth of the regency system, where reigning emperors would abdicate much of their official power to a kampaku, a regent who ruled in their name. But powerful aristocratic families wielded a great deal of influence at court already. I say this because the infighting between families for that influence had a big impact on young Kukai's life. You see, four years before Kukai arrived at the capital, a member of one of those powerful families, Fujiwara no Tanetsugu, had been placed in charge of a project to relocate the imperial capital. The reigning emperor Kanmu had decided that Nara no longer suited his purpose, and selected a new region he called Nagaoka-kyo, on the outskirts of modern Kyoto. Tanitsugu began to oversee construction, but would not be able to see it through, because one day, while he was doing his rounds, he was shot in the chest with an arrow. Unsurprisingly, given the location of the wound and quality of medical care, he did not make it. The assassination was a scandal, and in the wake of a giant investigation, one which included the execution of ten different people and the exile of the emperor's own brother, blame was pinned squarely on the patron of the Otomo clan, Otomo no Yakamochi. Yakamochi, so the thinking went, objected to the relocation of the capital because the new site was closer to the base of power of the rival Hata clan, to whom Emperor Kanmu and Fujiwara no Tanitsugu were both related. For our purposes, this matters quite a bit, because when young Kukai arrived at the capital in 789, this scandal was still alive and well, and it seems to have hurt his prospects. You see, 
he was sent to Nara to study at the Daigakuryo, a massive academy that was designed to mimic, among other things, the great Hanlin Academy of China's Tang Dynasty. There, the best and brightest of their generation would be trained as scholar bureaucrats in the Confucian tradition before being sent off to join the imperial bureaucracy and govern in the emperor's name. The Daigakuryo facilities were very massive and as such had not been relocated to the new capital, and actually never would be, because Nagaoka Kyo would be abandoned within ten years and shifted slightly to the north to modern Kyoto, partially because the Nagaoka Kyo site was prone to flooding and partially out of fear of the vengeful ghost of poor, dead Fujiwara no Tanetsugu. But anyway, the records here are not great, but it appears that young Kukai's ambition to be a part of the imperial bureaucracy was stymied while he was studying at the Daigakuryo, at least in part because, as a member of the Saeki clan, he was tarnished by the scandal of the Otomo's assassination of another member of the imperial court. Under such scandalous conditions, climbing the bureaucratic ranks would be difficult at best. While at the Daigakuryo, Kukai was exposed to something not directly related to his studies, but which would have a profound impact on his life. Buddhism. Buddhism already had a two-century history in Japan. It had been established for the first time in the 500s by missionaries from Korea. By the 700s, it had a decent-sized following, and one of the reasons that Summit Court wanted to move the emperor out of Nara was that the city was, and still is, covered in Buddhist temples that were wealthy and powerful, and which competed with the great aristocratic families for the emperor's attention. However, Buddhism was also carefully regulated. Both temple complexes and monks had to be licensed by the government. Unlicensed monks were forbidden from teaching, though the relatively weak authority of the imperial government meant in practice that that ban was very difficult to enforce outside of the strongholds of imperial power. If you're wondering why the ban was put in place, it was partially to control the wealth and authority of Buddhist institutions, and partially out of the fear that Buddhism could be used as a subversive ideology. And to be fair, Buddhism is pretty easy to turn into an anti-establishment doctrine, what with all that stuff about possessions and worldly attachment being bad. Anyway, young Kukai was very taken with the Buddhist ideas he read about and resolved to learn more. At the age of 22, he found an itinerant monk who introduced him to the practice of mantra chanting, repeating a specific phrase with the intent of focusing your mind on meditation. This particular mantra was focused on the Bodhisattva Akasagarbha, or in Japanese, Kokuzo whose portfolio, so to speak, was space itself. He was, in a sense, the patron saint of the concept of space or void. Kukai took to mantra chanting with a fervor, but it didn't answer all of his questions. He was an intellectual young man who wanted to know more about the doctrines of Buddhism, and so he scoured the libraries of Nara for more information. And he did find it. He came across a copy of a Buddhist sutra a didactic text designed to illustrate Buddhist theology. Unfortunately, the text he found, which was a copy of the Mahavairokana Tantra, was beyond him. Large chunks of it were in untranslated Sanskrit. 
the Indian language of philosophy, which Kukai could not read. Kukai was at first frustrated, but before long he was struck by a vision, the first religious vision of his life. In a dream, the Bodhisattva Akasagarbha, the same one whose mantra he chanted, came to him and told him what he likely already knew. He couldn't learn more about Buddhism in Japan, considering the paucity of what was available to him, so he would have to find better teachers, and there was only one practical place to get them, China. And so it was that Kukai managed to get himself onto a government-sponsored Buddhist pilgrimage to China in 804. Emperor Kanmu was apparently intrigued by Buddhist philosophy and wanted to see it spread in Japan and sponsored voyages like this one to support that mission. Placed in charge of the mission was a monk named Saicho, who was 37 at the time the voyages left and at the peak of his career. Saicho is a bit of our bit player in this week's story. He could read Chinese but not speak it, and thus would not stay in China for more than a few months. However, he's worth mentioning because, among other things, he will go on to become something of a Buddhist rock star when he returns to Japan. In particular, he will found one of Japan's most famous monasteries, Enryakuji, a sprawling complex atop Mount Hiei next to Lake Biwa, from which he would preach an enormously popular form of esoteric universalist Buddhism, Tendai Buddhism, or Tiantai in Chinese. So, the short version is, he's kind of a big deal. Kukai, at this point, was not that big of a deal, and honestly, I have no idea how in the hell he managed to sneak onto the voyage without being a government-sponsored monk. If I had to guess, maybe he called in some family favors. However he did it, he was lucky to be on one of the four ships headed to China, and was lucky not to be on the one that was forced to turn back in a storm, or the other that sank during the same storm. When Kukai arrived in China, he quickly proved his utility to the expedition. As one of the only Chinese speakers on the voyage, he was able to untangle a bureaucratic snafu that resulted in their ship accidentally being impounded for not having a permit. From there, he was off to the capital of the Tang Dynasty and the greatest city in East Asia, Chang'an. The city of Chang'an was a bit off from its glory days. Fifty years earlier, a massive rebellion led by the Turkish general An Lushan had devastated China, and the great capital had not emerged unscathed. Thousands, even millions by some count, died in the fighting, and in many ways, the Tang Dynasty would never truly recover, even after winning the Civil War. Indeed, while the war ended in 673, for 15 years after that, Raiders from Tibet would make an annual trip to Chang'an where they would steal anything that wasn't nailed down. However, even diminished as it was, the size and splendor of what was quite likely the first million-person city on Earth was still plenty for young Kukai to take in. Kukai was sent to Chang'an because the Chinese imperial court took it upon itself to arrange positions for all Japanese Buddhist monks at Chinese monasteries, where they could study to their heart's content. These took a while to arrange, but after a couple months, Kukai was off to the races with a spot at one of Chang'an's many Buddhist monasteries. What's more important about his time in China, however, was not where he studied, but who he studied with. 
Specifically, after a few months, Kukai was introduced to his greatest teacher, a Chinese Buddhist master named Huiguo. Now, in a city unique for its eclectic embrace of different religions, for the city of Chang'an at this point had Taoist temples, Buddhist ones, Zoroastrian temples, and even a Nestorian Christian church in its walls, Huiguo was still a bit of a unique fellow, because he taught something known as esoteric Buddhism, specifically a branch of it from the Vajrayana branch of Buddhism. Now, if you're not too hip on the divisions within Buddhism, basically there are two big branches of Buddhism, Mahayana Buddhism, East Asian Buddhism, and Southeast Asian Buddhism, Theravadan Buddhism. The doctrinal differences between Mahayana and Theravada are incredibly hard to parse, so I'm not even going to try. There is, however, a third, somewhat late-blooming branch that came out of India just before the Muslim invasions of the subcontinent basically destroyed its Buddhist establishment outside of a few small territories, Vajrayana Buddhism. Vajrayana Buddhists rely on complex rituals and abstract visualizations to physically represent a path to enlightenment and guide you along it. Probably the best-known esoteric Vajrayana Buddhist today is the Dalai Lama. Tibetan Buddhism represents the single largest Vajrayana community on earth. Huiguo, however, practiced a similar type of Buddhism, though it never caught on big in China. But in Kukai, he found an eager student. Kukai himself later described their first meeting, making it seem like Huiguo no sooner met him than decided to take him on as a student. He wrote, quote, Accompanied by my teachers and several other Dharma masters from my home at the Ximing Monastery, I went to visit Huiguo and was granted an audience. As soon as he saw me, the abbot smiled and said with delight, since learning of your arrival, I have waited anxiously. How excellent, how excellent that we have met today at last. My life is ending soon, and yet I have no more disciples to whom to transmit the Dharma. Kukai's instruction in the Dharma, the way of Buddhism, flew by. At least according to Kukai, Huiguo described their teaching relationship as, quote, like pouring water from one vessel into another, which is to say, effortless. However, Huiguo was not a young man and would die less than a year after meeting Kukai, but the two had enough time that Huiguo felt confident enough to certify Kukai as a master and send him back to Japan with a mission to spread Vajrayana across the islands. Kukai returned to Japan in 806, full of Buddhist enthusiasm and with a chest full of Buddhist texts in a variety of stages of translation from Sanskrit and Chinese to Japanese. However, the Japan he returned to was a different place from the one he left. The Kanmu Emperor had died the previous year, and the new Emperor Heisei had little enthusiasm for Buddhism. In addition, Saicho had beaten him home, and had already worked to establish himself as one of the preeminent Buddhists at court. As a result, Kukai was not granted an immediate audience with the emperor. Kukai, however, was not deterred, and simply set about learning and studying as much as he could. It took three years for Kukai's official report of his studies abroad to be presented to the emperor and officially approved, but it did happen, after Heisei's weak constitution resulted in his death. 
he was replaced by Emperor Saga, who was far better disposed to Buddhism and to Kukai specifically, both because of Kukai's impressive intellect and because of the aura of brilliance surrounding anybody who had been to Chang'an, the greatest city on earth. Emperor Saga granted Kukai his first temple on the outskirts of Kyoto. Kukai's relationship with Emperor Saga meant that he was able to quickly climb the ranks of the Buddhist clergy. Within a year, he was the head of the highly prestigious Todaiji in Nara, the same temple with the giant Buddha statue that took 160,000 cubic feet of charcoal to make. He was also given a government position as head of the body charged with regulating the Buddhist priesthood. The man who started his life as an outsider had proven himself and was now a complete insider. Kukai even had a chance to teach his somewhat rival Saicho after the latter requested private instructions expressing curiosity in Vajrayana Buddhism. However, the two then had a falling out because Kukai refused to initiate Saicho as a master of said teachings, saying that he believed Saicho was not yet ready. Now, I won't go into the full twists and turns of Kukai's career because they're very complicated, but I do want to hit some highlights. First, we should talk about Kukai's time on his ancestral island of Shikoku. You might remember that a few years ago we had Paul Barak as a guest on this show, and he talked a bit about his time doing the Shikoku pilgrimage, the 88 temple circuit around the island of Shikoku. The temples along that pilgrimage were founded by Kukai, and he also developed the idea of a circuit pilgrimage around the island. Rather more difficult to verify, to put it mildly, are all the miracles ascribed to Kukai during his time building up the temple circuit. Everything from sculpting a tree in the image of the Vairokana Buddha using only his fingers, to chasing off trickster fox spirits and demons that haunted the circuit path. Kukai was heavily invested in bringing Buddhism to his home island at a time when Shikoku was, if not frontier territory, still far less built up than the main island of Honshu. Kukai, more than anybody else, brought Buddhism to Shikoku, and his peculiar sect of Buddhism remains one of, if not the strongest, one on the island. Kukai didn't just invest in the religious infrastructure of Shikoku, he also directed and funded public works projects, the most famous one being a damming project designed to create a reservoir for irrigation in his home province of Sanuki. That reservoir on the Mono River, called, creatively enough, the Mono Reservoir, still exists and is actually the largest irrigation reservoir in Japan. It seems that, much like early Christians won sympathy from Romans with their charity, Kukai figured that public works and investment in his home region were just as good, if not better, than investing in temple building when it came to winning converts. It was also on Shikoku that Kukai finally obtained the goal all Buddhists strive for, Nirvana, the release from desire and arrival at enlightenment. Supposedly, while meditating in a cave near the village of Moroto, Kukai had a sudden realization that propelled him to enlightenment. At the time, he was sitting in the cave, gazing out at the sea, focusing his gaze on the midpoint where the sky, Kyu or Ku, meant the sea, Kai. In memory of this moment, he took on a new Buddhist name, the name he's known by, Kukai. 
Second, in 819, Kukai received permission from Emperor Saga to begin a project he'd been considering for some time. He wanted to build a temple complex removed from the big cities of Japan, where Buddhists could devote their energy to intense study, contemplation, and teaching. If you're more cynical about these things, it's also possible that he wanted a complex to rival that of Saicho, who was already energetically building up his sprawling Enryakuji complex outside of Kyoto. The site granted to Kukai for his complex was called Mount Koya, which, in a nod to Kukai's own heritage, was on Honshu in what is now Wakayama Prefecture, meaning that it was close to the Inland Sea that divides Shikoku from Honshu. Kukai's plan for the Mount Koya complex was very complex. One of the peculiarities of Vajrayana Buddhism is its use of mandalas, elaborate symbolic representations of the cosmic order designed to act as a visual teaching aid for adherents. Kukai planned Mount Koya to be one gigantic mandala. Specifically, the design of the complex was to replicate the mandala of the two realms, one of the central ideas of Kukai's teachings. The two realms, if you're wondering, are the Diamond Realm, which represents the unchanging truths of Buddhism, and the Womb Realm, which represents the way in which those truths play out in the world. Thus, the whole mandala is representative of the fundamental idea of Buddhism, the truth of its teachings, and the way those teachings are reflected in the world. Kukai wanted the flat plain surrounding Mount Koya to represent the Womb Realm, and the peak of the mountain itself to represent the Diamond Realm, to match that symbolic representation. The Mount Koya complex is still around today. It's the traditional endpoint of the Shikoku pilgrimage, and also an incredibly popular site for both tourists and religious devotees in its own right. It also houses an incredible art museum in which the writings of Kukai as well as some fantastic paintings and historical artifacts are stored. Definitely worth a day trip if you ever find yourself in Wakayama. Speaking of Kukai's writings, these are the last thing I want to talk about. You see, Kukai's writings are probably the most interesting part of his work. Kukai wrote extensively on what distinguished his own teachings, which he called Mikyo, literally secret teachings, commonly translated as esoteric Buddhism, from other forms of Buddhism, which he called Kengyo, public teachings, or commonly translated exoteric Buddhism. According to Kukai, Followers of exoteric Buddhism, of the public teachings, held that the way of the Buddha, the Dharma, the laws of Buddhism, are separate and above the world we live in, and thus cannot be fully expressed in language or understood by the human mind as it is. Accordingly, exoteric Buddhists believe it takes literal lifetimes of striving as we are born, die, and reincarnate to comprehend the law of the Buddha and obtain enlightenment. Kukai, however, traced his teachings to a fundamentally different source, not the historical Shakyamuni Buddha that you probably read about in your high school social studies textbook, but the Vairokana Buddha, an earlier Buddha in the Buddhist tradition. According to Kukai, Vairokana's teachings emphasized that the laws of the Buddha were not this mysterious, ineffable thing that nobody can grasp. They're evident in the world, in the thoughts and minds of every person who lived and every person who will ever live. 
The potential to understand the truths of Buddhism is present in all of us. We just have to work to unlock it. Thus, Kukai stressed that his form of esoteric Buddhism was not about striving over several lifetimes. That innate understanding of Buddhist law, present in all of us, means that it is possible for all of us to obtain enlightenment in this very lifetime, via hard work culminating in a moment of satori, a moment of realization that results in enlightenment. Kukai rejected the gradualism of esoteric Buddhism in favor of something far more immediate. In one sense, this is a continuation of a contemporary debate between Kukai and his fellow monks. However, it's also an expression of a debate fundamental to Buddhism itself on the nature of enlightenment and how the process of enlightenment works. Perhaps the crowning moment of Kukai's career as a Buddhist leader came in 823, yet again as a result of his friendship with Emperor Saga. You see, when Kyoto was first being built by Emperor Kanmu, he explicitly forbade any of the Buddhist establishment of Nara to follow him to the capital. They could not build new temples or branches of existing ones because Kanmu and his allies feared the growing influence of the Buddhist establishment. However, in a nod to the fact that Buddhism itself was now rooted in the Japanese aristocracy and not going anywhere, Kanmu did allow for the construction of two temples on Kyoto's ground, Toji and Saiji, respectively Eastern Temple and Western Temple. However, by 823, Toji was still not finished, and Emperor Saga asked Kukai to finish the temple. In exchange, Kukai and his followers would be granted exclusive use of the Toji facilities, something pretty unusual at a time when most temples were open to monks of every sect. Incidentally, the construction license for Toji granted by Emperor Saga and his son and successor, Emperor Junna, was also the first place where the name of Kukai's sect appears in writing. Kukai's teachings are referred to as Shingonshu, the sect of the true word. His followers still use that term, and Shingon Buddhism is, so far as I know, the largest Vajrayana Buddhist community in the world outside of Tibet. Tolji became Kukai's power base and a way for Shingon Buddhism to influence the corridors of power in Kyoto. Incidentally, in a funny coincidence, while the Toji project was being finished, Kukai, in a moment of incredible foresight, ordered one final construction project, Zempukuji, which he managed remotely. It was to be placed in a podunk fishing village nobody had ever heard of, called Edo, which only 800 years later would become the most important city in Japan. And I guess if you're a Buddhist who believes that the universe is unfathomably old, 800 years is not that bad of a time investment, so good thinking there, Kukai. Kukai's influence was tremendous, to the point that he even succeeded in changing the coronation rituals for the emperor to include a Buddhist element marking the emperor as something called a Chakravartin, a sort of Buddhist sage king. His greatest work, the Juju Shinron, Ten Stages in the Development of the Mind, was completed in 830 and is a titanic piece of theology, laying out all of his beliefs, if not concisely, then at least logically. In 834, Kukai received permission to found a Shingon micro-temple of sorts inside the Imperial Palace, 
and Shingon Buddhist religious rituals were incorporated into the all-important ritual calendar, which governed the life of the emperor. The next year, he left Kyoto for Mount Koya after winning one final concession, the right to ordain three state-sponsored Shingon monks every year. Knowing that the end was coming, Kukai began refusing all food and water and spent his time engaged in meditation instead. Supposedly at midnight on the 21st day of the third lunar month of 835, he died. His body was preserved at Mount Koya, and supposedly still is to this day, for Shingon teachings state that Kukai attained a state of perfect samadhi, or meditative awareness, and he remains not dead but in a meditative trance. He will supposedly reawaken at the coming of the Buddha Maitreya, whose arrival signals the end of our present age and the birth of a new one. Monks on Mount Koya to this day bring a regular change of clothing and food for Kukai, though nobody other than the monks is allowed to see the body. So Kukai, I think, is a really interesting fellow. His religious ideas seem, in a sense, almost religiously democratic. This notion that everyone has the potential for enlightenment levels the playing field in a way that I think was uncommon in his day. Indeed, his ideas would prove tremendously influential in other Buddhist sects that promised enlightenment in this lifetime. For example, Nichiren, who praised the brilliance of the Lotus Sutra and preached Japan's unique potential as a Buddhist state, was a student of Shingon Buddhism and read Kukai extensively. Dogen, one of Japan's great Zen masters, and we'll be doing an episode on him sometime, Dogen loved Kukai. But just as important as his theological contributions is Kukai's connection to the Japanese state. He began his life as an outsider, but ended it as a friend of emperors and master of an imperially supported Buddhist sect. To me, a modern Westerner steeped in the separation of the religious establishment and the state, that always reads as uncomfortable, and it did to other Buddhists as well. Dogen, for example, accepted Kukai's theological writings but rejected the idea of ties to the government, believing that it would compromise his integrity as a religious leader. However, it's also important to realize that A, our reaction comes out of our own time. Kukai was not a product of that time. B, on a practical level, Kukai wasn't wrong. After all, the establishment he built up is going strong. Mount Koya is still a Buddhist stronghold. People still walk the circuit pilgrimage around Shikoku, and the name Kukai still has a powerful resonance in Japan and around the world, even after 1,200 years. That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Special thanks this week to Marius Druzinskis, and I'm sure I got that wrong, I do apologize, and John Ross for donating to support the show. To join them, to find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit your ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week when we will take a look at Japanese fascism and Japan's most famous fascist, Kita Iki.